This week on the Higher Ed Shift, we sit down with Chris Sinclair, the Executive Director of Flip National. Flip National is a nonprofit, student-based organization established in 2015. They promote equal opportunity for first-generation, low-income students in higher education. Chris was a founding member of the Columbia chapter of FLIP. He shares with us some of the greatest challenges facing first-generation, low-income students, from housing and food insecurity to imposter syndrome, to reasons students may be reluctant to raise their hand for help, and what administrators can do to better partner with student advocacy groups reminding us that students will tell you what they need if you are able and willing to listen. And he even talks about why a single definition of first generation within higher education will cause more harm than good. Chris also leaves us with a thought-provoking idea when I ask what is one thing colleges should stop doing today. Please join Chris and I in our discussion and make sure to check out the show notes for more information about Flip National and how you can support them. And welcome to today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift. I'm Amy Glynn, VP of Student Financial Success at Campus Logic, and the host of today's conversation with Chris Sinclair, Executive Director of Flip National. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. So I am super excited to have you share with the audience more about yourself and what you're doing at Flip. Uh, So can I just have you introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about Flip National? Absolutely. So I was born on a Thursday. Um, (laughs) We're we're getting in the way back machine, right? Yeah, but I'm just kidding, but not about the being born on Thursday part. I actually was born on Thursday. Um, (laughs) so, um, So my name is Chris Sinclair. I am the executive director of Flip National. FLIP is an acronym, stands for First Generation Low Income Partnership, and we are a national nonprofit organization that does advocacy work on behalf of first generation and our low income college students at colleges and universities across the country. Our core tenet is that we center student advocacy and the student voice above all else, not to the exclusion of all else, but above all else. I personally graduated from the School of General Studies at Columbia University pretty recently in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really excited to sort of talk through some of what Flip National does. We are relatively young as an organization. We were formed in 2015. Uh, it's a byproduct of how we came into the work. We started out as a student organization. I was a founding member during my time at Columbia of a student organization called Columbia Flip. Columbia Flip is based on Stanford Flip. Stanford Flip is the original Flip. I wanna make sure I state that very clearly because I don't want anyone to co-opt the work that Stanford Flip has done. Stanford Flip was formed in 2010 and they pioneered this work and we learned a lot from them, including how we broke through at Columbia. So when Columbia Flip was formed, we essentially copied Stanford Flip. Mm -hmm. We took what they did and we ran with it. If it works, don't. Don't mess with it, right? Broke. The game broke. (laughs) Totally. Uh, And so, so we were we formed Columbia Flip in 2014. I wasn't the main person that founded Columbia Flip, but I was a founding member. I was involved from the beginning, and during our first year on campus, we had a lot of success making change 
at Columbia and raising awareness about the first gen low income student identity at Columbia, which if you know anything about Columbia is a very, very hard thing to do. They sort of have a reputation about that on that front. And so we ultimately decided that at one point we were getting national, international media attention for some of the things we were doing. There was momentum building up and we decided that we were going to branch out and and try to take the work that we were doing beyond Columbia. And so we adopted a chapter-based model. At this very moment in time, we have 28 chapters around the country and counting. In addition to that, we have about maybe 40 or so schools that are interested in starting chapters or just in varying degrees of development and engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, So for context, many of your listeners might be familiar with QuestBridge. QuestBridge is sort of the closest to what we do, even though they're not very close because what we do is very unique. At last check, QuestBridge has 45 chapters and they were founded in 1994. We were founded in 2015 and we have 28 chapters. So you're growing, you're growing much quicker. Yeah. And so, so yeah, other than that, we don't really do a whole lot. So your, your time isn't, you're not busy. Just chilling. (laughs) First, is it first generation and low income or first generation or low income? Does that make sense? Yes. Very good question. I'm glad you asked. We are intentional about it being and or. And or. Meaning you can identify as both. You can identify as one. You can identify as the other. You can identify as neither. The P is for partnership, which is to say you can be an ally. You can support first-gen low-income students without yourself being first-gen and or low-income. My, In my case, by some institutional definitions, I'm not first-gen. By some definitions, I am first-gen. And so we try to accommodate and incorporate all of the different definitions that exist. And we encourage folks to self-identify on that front. And so we are very intentionally and or, so you don't have to be both, you can be one or the other. I love that. Um, and and even the the partnership or the allyship that, that you guys bring into the conversation. And I, I think that's actually one of the things that I've always struggled with are the multiple definitions of first gen first generation in particular i think there's a little bit more consistency around low income measures but but that definition of a first generation is very broad do you think is there a need to standardize it or do you guys just not have a position there because of the broadness of of how you allow members to self identify and have the partnership component yeah i think from, from my vantage point and from our vantage point, we're very focused on inclusivity. One of the reasons that we have the approach that we do, because I mentioned the chapters, our chapters are dedicated student-run first-gen student organizations. And again, part of the reason why we have that approach is because of how we came into the work. But another reason why we have that approach, we're intentional about we don't deal with TRIO programs. We don't deal with scholarship programs. We don't deal with administrative offices. We don't deal with advisory boards because all of those things are sort of exclusive in a way. They only serve a certain subset of the first-gen low-income population. If you are in a TRIO program, great. If you're not in a TRIO program, you can access their resources. If you're in a scholarship program, that's good for you. If you're not, you can access the resources that other first-gen students have. Conversely, 
the student organization tends to be the most inclusive vehicle for change. It tends to, as long as you're not extremely problematic as a person, it tends to invite people in and want more participation in, in the organization. And so we're very focused on the inclusivity piece. And because of that, we don't want to adopt a definition of being yep. first gen that might exclude some folks, right? So okay. I mentioned my own, in my own case, there are some definitions, there's some institutions whose definition means neither parent has earned a post-secondary degree. Mm-hmm. By that definition, I am not first gen. Some institutions are more broad and they say, you have one parent that has not obtained a, a, a a post-secondary degree. And by that definition, I am first gen, right? And so you want to make sure that you're being as inclusive as possible. And I think part of the debate about whether or not to adopt a sort of standardized definition is you don't want to leave folks out that might otherwise have the same experiences, need the same support. So I think it's generally better to be as inclusive as possible with respect to all the definitions. I love, I love that way of looking at it because, you know, being a financial aid person, I may tend towards rules and kind of boxes. And the reality is students today don't fit in nice, neat little boxes. Every student's college journey is unique. And it's actually what I think has has lended to more complexity in trying to provide students support So I would love to have you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a first-generation low-income student today. What are the experiences that you guys are hearing about, and what what are some of your top advocacy issues? Wow, that's a big question, right? Question. Well, Um, that lets you talk about anything you want. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Do we have enough time for this? I don't know. (laughs) I don't, we don't, we don't. It'll be a two part Um, episode. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, to be continued, right? I'll say this there is an incredible amount of nuance to the first gen low income student experience. Obviously, no two experiences look alike. There is some overlap. You know, we were talking before about the first gen and or low income student designation, right? Because there's overlap between being first gen and being low income. There are a few, there are quite a few things that come to mind in terms of the experience. So I'll just sort of talk about some of the the most common ones. Yeah. One, which is probably of, of relevance to many of your listeners is the imposter syndrome that a lot of first-gen low-income students feel for a number of reasons. One is because institutions in higher education were not made for first-gen low-income students. You know, if you think back, if you think about some of the most prestigious institutions, some of the oldest institutions in the country, they're older than the United States itself. Mm -hmm. They were definitely not created for underrepresented minorities, among other places, right? They weren't intended to be for indigenous folks. They weren't intended to be for women. They weren't intended to be for physically disabled folks, Mm -hmm. um, for undocumented folks, for black folks. So over the course of generations, there has been a prevalence of a specific type of student that comes from a specific type 
of background. And when you as a first-gen low-income student enter that space and you're expected to be able to navigate that space, to succeed in that space, to overcome in that space, and oftentimes you don't have the necessary supports that you'll need to do so, that can be a daunting thing that makes you feel like you don't belong. Yeah. Um, so there is stigma associated with some of, uh, some of the experiences and plights of being first-gen low-income when you're dealing with things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, basic needs. You know, why do we have this notion that in the K-12 system, school students that are on free and reduced school lunches, that's an integral part of their ability to learn, but somehow that stops when you get to college. So that's one I remember that's still happened. eating when I was in college. I mean, <laughs> I, it felt important. I mean, I, it, <laughs> it is important. It is. Um, and, and in fact, you know, it's, it's funny because, it, you know, we think about those kinds of conversations about, you know, what the student experience is, mm -hmm. right? We have a way of sort of making a trope out of what the student experience is. It's like, you know, students are on the right of or, or the ramen noodle diet and they go to class and then they lock themselves in the library and pull all nighters and they go to keg parties and that's what college is. And we almost treat it as if that's a rite of passage that like, oh, when I was in college, I had to do that. And it's just the way it is. Why is it the way it is? Yeah, It doesn't what have to do? be that way and it shouldn't be that way. And what can we do to, to, to further address that? Right. So the imposter syndrome and just a byproduct of having to navigate this kind of space, it sort of um, provides a lot of the context of what the first-gen low-income student experience is. There's obviously the, the financial aid and the financial support piece of how you're going to pay for things. How are you surviving? Um, a lot of times we talk about surviving versus thriving yeah. and largely first-gen low-income students are barely surviving. They might have to work two or three jobs while they're in school to send money home. Thing that comes to mind for that, again, is relevant to uh, your audience of financial aid professionals is when that student gets their financial aid refund, if they're getting one, what do mm -hmm. they do with it? Do they use it on themselves or do they send it home because they're experiencing survivor's guilt? Because, you know, back home, I was a breadwinner and now I'm not there to help make money to make ends meet. And oh, by the way, maybe my family back home doesn't have running water or electricity or yeah. Wi-Fi, um, and they're struggling. And you feel guilty being in a relatively luxurious situation compared to that of your family that you're you feel like you're leaving behind, right? Yeah. So that's an, another element of the experience that that comes to mind for first-gen low-income students. So there, there's a lot. There's there's quite a bit that that comes up in terms of what first-gen low-income students face. And then a lot, a lot of what compounds it is the institutional response to their, their experience. A lot of times, first-gen low-income students don't feel heard. They yeah. don't feel supported. They're constantly told all the reasons why things can't happen. One thing I will relay that I heard recently in a group chat with, which is filled with first-gen low-income students is a student sort of lamented and, and sort of threw her hands up and said, I am so tired of having to prove that I'm poor. Mm -hmm. I'm so tired of having to prove that I'm broke. I'm so tired of having to prove that I'm so poor that I'm poor enough to qualify for help. That's a daunting thing. And it, and it often uh, causes students to have to relive trauma and to relive 
less than desirable experiences that they're trying to do what society tells them is the right way to try to better those experiences and better their plight. But it's such a struggle for them. But I will say this, I don't want to be, I don't want to stay in a deficit framing as it relates to the experience. I will say that the first gen low-income student community is the most amazing community that you could ever come across. And first gen low-income students are superheroes. They overcome, they're more likely to give back, they support one another, and the extent to which they contribute to the overall campus community, uh, community makes one wonder why it is that we're so reluctant to put more resources behind the things that students care about. Yeah, and I, your, you know, your point about the resiliency, the passion, the, the community, um, the, the philanthropic nature of how they want to help each other and help others who are facing similar situations is, is really powerful to watch. Um, I was, I was captured a little bit, um, by your comment about the, the students and, and the frustration about having to prove the poorness to, you know, to, to be able to show that they can access dollars and kind of the, the trauma that they're forced to relive through some of these experience. And, and actually this was a topic that a friend of both of ours, Daniel Barkowitz and I spoke about a couple of weeks ago on the show. And as an aid administrator, sometimes I'm put in a really difficult position that I've got these federal regulations, these institutional regulations or requirements that I have to, I have to check the boxes on. And it is forcing me to have these conversations with students. Like what can aid administrators do to help make those, some of those conversations and processes easier for students Uh, besides advocating, right? We should always advocate to eliminate the things we don't need, but how can we interact differently with our first-gen low-income students to make them feel safer in those spaces and more heard? Yeah, this is, um, this, so part of the answer to that is another thing that first-gen low-income students experience as part of their experience on campus, which is, you know, one of the ways to sort of deal with first-gen low-income students in a different way is understanding that first-gen low-income students are very bad at asking for help Mm. because they are usually the ones that are figuring things out. And so they are sort of, they might, like I said, they might be the breadwinners at home. They might be the only English speaking person in their family, which means they're the one that has to sort of liaise with companies and bill collectors and all kinds of folks. And so they're constantly having to figure out how to make things work and how to make ends meet and and what to do to deal with certain situations. Now they come into a situation where you tell them, by the way, there's a whole support system here for you. That is, for lack of a better term, foreign to a a first-gen low-income student. And then there's a trust issue with the institution, with asking for help generally. And as soon as it goes badly, they're more, they're less inclined to seek further help. So one thing that financial aid administrators can be doing is to be more receptive and not dismissive of student narratives, of student mm-hmm. plights, of student struggles, of student experiences, because I hear all kinds of stories 
about how financial aid administrators were insensitive to things that first-gen low-income students have to do because, again, their plight of of how they have to navigate higher education is going to be different from our more privileged peers that you're more accustomed to dealing with if you've been in financial aid administration for a long time. And the typical or the traditional college student looks differently today than it does 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Just to give an example of that, when I was in school, speaking for myself now, I went to the School of General Studies. We can have a whole entire conversation about the financial aid system at GS relative to Columbia College and how GS doesn't have access to Columbia College's endowment and why that's problematic. And that's a conversation for a whole nother day. <laughs> um, but the, I, when I was there, I dealt with, uh, there were two main financial aid folks that worked in the office that most people dealt with. And one was much more popular than the other. Mm-hmm. I happened to develop a rapport with the less popular one who many people had sort of adverse experiences with, but I didn't. I had a better experience with him. And at one point I was sort of talking to him about my situation and how I was going to pay for things. And he immediately tells me, or not immediately, as during the course of the conversation, he sort of says, well, there's this website where you can look for jobs working for the school. And he finds, and there's a jobs website and you can look up a job and part of the benefits of receiving these jobs because they are union jobs is that you get up to a certain amount of credits for free that you can that you don't have to pay for and at the school of general studies you have to pay by the credit so gs students are paying more to take the same level of classes as columbia college students etc so long story short he tells me about this i find a job and it's like you can, if you work at this job, you get three credits for free. And then after a certain amount of time working there, it goes up to six credits for free. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is a great solution. Okay. So I go, I remember leaving the office and I was uh, starting to talk to my peers about some of that. And they said, well, he never told me about that. And that made me think, why did he tell me that? But he wouldn't tell the next person that. And so part of what students feel when they have these adverse experiences and especially when they talk amongst themselves they go, oh well i emailed such and such and and they said this or i have the same situation as you but you're getting more than i am what's different about my situation part of what needs to happen there is there needs to be a conversation about what is available operate in the realm of what can be done and not what cannot be done Mm -hmm. be solutions oriented and I think this is another important thing. If you cannot do something, if you cannot disperse aid for a specific purpose, if you cannot fund something, if you cannot uh, provide funding for whatever a certain reason, don't simplify the explanation for why not. Because there is a lot of there's a lot of demystifying that needs to happen among first-gen low-income students. They don't understand sometimes why things are happening the way they are, especially when they hear that their peers have similar situations and it worked out for them, but not for the person that that is asking the question about it. Like, why did this happen for you and not for me? Yeah. And people will re- students will really appreciate having knowledge of, well, this is the regulation. This is what we had to do. This is the limit. This is how this works. If they have clarity about why things are happening the way that they are, that that breeds trust, even if you cannot immediately solve their issue. So that's another thing that's really important. Yeah. My gosh, there's just so much 
there's so much that you said there that that resonates with me and that that I want to I want to echo to to both our, our you know our financial aid and and our enrollment listeners um but I think the most important thing is is that that conversation about trust and compassion when when we're having conversations with with students because to your point about about a hesitancy or kind of a culture where they were, they're just fixers and maybe don't reach out. If they reach out and that first experience is negative, they're not going to reach out again, which is, which is really tragic when places like the aid office really do have great resources and can help students through, through the funding process. So yeah, the old adage of treat others as we want to be treated, I think is, is really important on that one. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to hit you here. I know we're, we're coming up on time, but I'm going to hit you with another big one. We All have right. tons of conversations going on about free community college and doubling the Pell Grant. And so much of the work that you guys are doing and your student-led organizations are doing tied directly back to financial issues, paying for basic needs while in school. What do you want people to know about the impact that these programs could have on the students that you work with on a daily basis? Great question. So the first thing I want people to know is, and I wanna make sure I make this very, very clear. I wanna make a distinction between quote unquote free community college and tuition free community college. Because you can talk to any student whose tuition is subsidized, subsidized for whatever reason, whether they meet the, the family household income doesn't reach the threshold and so they're getting free, uh, t- their tuition subsidized by an mm-hmm. institution or whatever reason it is. And you go ask them whether or not college is free for them, which brings me to another point, which is students are people. They have to be whole people. They don't stop being whole people because they become students. And so just being thoughtful about what kinds of financial support a student might need, which brings me to the question about basic needs insecurity. And I want to make sure that I I highlight the work uh, that our friends at the Hope Center um, and Sarah Goldrick-Rab are doing because as I mentioned before, there is a direct correlation between having your basic needs met and being able to perform academically. You know, we can go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. Survival comes before anything else. If you're not able to uh, meet your survival needs, then you're not going to be able to focus on anything else. If I don't know where my next meal is coming from, how am I supposed to focus on that midterm or that final? Yeah or write that paper or write or complete that problem set, or even send an email saying that I was supposed to do something and I need accommodation or manage all of my other affairs. Because my first thing is I'm hungry. I need to eat. I need to nourish myself. And so one of the things that needs to be a part of this conversation as it relates to the Pell Grant and being Pell eligible and, and all these different programs is these are programs that affect college retention and affect overall academic performance. I have struggled to sort of think through what the institutional perspective is behind not 
putting more resources behind this because if you fund these things what you'll find is folks have more resources available to them to to not have to worry about being homeless or starving or yeah. having to resort to things like sex work or dumpster diving which is among the things that i've heard from students that they've had to endure um, just in order to survive while they're in college those things are not happening you theoretically have more time to focus on your on your studies and and perform academically which allows you to stay on track to continue receiving final financial aid to be able to get through to graduation and you know that's another thing is that we need to stop sort of treating getting to college is the end goal. Getting to college is not the end goal. Getting through college is the end goal. Getting the degree is the end goal. Um, so getting there is just a step in that direction. But college retention rates are going to be improved if students don't have to take time off or have medical leaves or do what they need to do to survive before they can think about finishing their degrees. And so if these institutions are uh, providing those resources to be able to address those needs, higher GPAs, higher retention rates, higher graduation rates, higher rankings overall, which ultimately redounds to a benefit to the institution. So absolutely important to really think of basic needs, think of things, think of things like food insecurity initiatives, housing insecurity initiatives. Um, you know, what about students who are parents, childcare, mm -hmm. All of these different things that comprise the total, the, the holistic experience of a first-gen low-income student, really important to think of those in academic performance terms, just as you would anything else, any other metric that an institution might measure that affects their prestige or their standing as an institution. 100, 1,000% in alignment with you that these financial challenges that students are facing don't stay in a vacuum. And they they impact the academics, they impact the affinity to the institution, the ability to be successful and move on to, to completion. And I, I argue all of the time, and I think this is totally in alignment with what you were saying, the goal is not to get admitted to college. The goal is to complete college, um, which is why we look really strongly at a limit, reducing the number of students who have some college with no degree. Right now we have 32 million students in this nation with some college, no degree, and 12 million of them hold student debt. And so for us, as we think about delivering on student financial success, one of the measures of that is reducing the number of students that are dropping each year, because we found that the number one reason they drop is financial. And to your point, the financial that's impacting the academic and the success metrics at the institution. Um, so love that. I could listen to you all day. Um, <laughs> so we're coming up um, on time, but I want our listeners, you know, they're mostly higher education administrators in, in enrollment management and in financial aid. So 28 chapters of FLIP at, at different colleges throughout the country. One, where can people find out if there is a flip chapter on their campus? And two, how can our listeners actively provide support to those student-led organizations? Very, very good question. So we are in the process of revamping our website. And one of the things that will be added to the website is where we have chapters. I would love to list them 
I could try to list them. No. Um, <laughs> we'll link, we will link to the resource of your website definitely in, in the show notes. Yeah. So, I mean, I can, I can, all right, I'm going to give it a go if you don't mind, because no, go for it. I think, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. All right. So here we go. So we have chapters at Columbia University, which is first chapter, because that's where we started. Flip at Emory. So Emory University. Mm-hmm. Um, Penn first is a chapter at the University of Pennsylvania. Flip at NYU. Lehigh first at Lehigh University. Pitts are first gen club at Pitts College. I'm first at Johns Hopkins. Cornell first gen student union at Cornell University. First gen's at Brown at Brown University. First crew at Case Western Reserve. University, uh, the Scale Project at Bard College, U First at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, uh, First Generation Students Organization at the College of Worcester in Ohio, First Generation Students Association at Appalachian State University, FGCS at Michigan, that's the University of Michigan. We have FLIP at UVA, that's the University of Virginia, uh, First Gen Patriots at George Mason University, UMass FLIP at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Tarleton first, it's Tarleton State University. Uh, Flip at Boston U at Boston University. UNC FGSA, so it's the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, First generation organization at the University of Florida, that's 22 for those of you who are counting. University of North Texas, uh, first generation student organization there. Uh, First gen student alliance at Furman University. TORCH, which stands for Together organizing resources for college help at James Madison University, 25. First VU at Vanderbilt University. Flip at Texas State, um, so Texas State University. And lastly, YFAM, which is the Yale FGLI advocacy movement at Yale University. So I believe that is 28. Lovely. That was amazing. So what I hear is a call to action for our Southwestern institutions. I don't think I heard any of my Arizona partners, maybe Utah, Colorado, maybe not, maybe there was one California and I heard two Texases. So I'm, I'm gonna put the call out there for our Southwestern colleges to, uh, to get on board here with these student organizations. So one last one, what is the one thing You can do this either way you want. You can do a stop and a start or a stop or a start. What is one thing you would like to see college administrators stop doing immediately? And one thing you'd like to see them start doing immediately? I'm going to do an and. Okay. And people are going to be surprised to hear this. One thing I want administrators to stop doing immediately, and it's, it's, it's interesting timing because it's coming up. Stop celebrating National First Gen Day immediately. Okay. Why? Please. Now, full disclosure, I have a problem with National First Gen Day that may or may not have to do with the fact that we did it first and the idea was stolen from us. But that's not why. Okay. The reason why I want people to stop celebrating National First Gen Day is because I am of the mindset and just given all of the different things that I hear students recite to us and relate to us about how their institutions treat them versus what their public statements are and the disparity between those two things. When I speak to administrators and I speak to students, there are two different conversations that are happening. 
And because of that disparity, I am of the mindset that you must earn the privilege of celebrating your first-gen students. You don't get to use them for marketing purposes to make yourself look good, to help recruit first-gen students to your campus for marketing purposes and for your own public image as an institution. Mm -hmm. So unless you have earned the privilege and you are adequately supporting your first-gen students and you are listening to their plights, that they have meaningful seats at the table and they are driving the conversation about how to make a, a, a difference on their campus, don't celebrate them because anything short of that is performative allyship, right? This is akin to why do you wait until February to celebrate Black History Month? Black History Month, Black History happens all the time. Why are you waiting until the month of February to focus on it? And then when mm -hmm. March 1st comes around, you turn your back and you go back to the doing the same old thing. That is performative allyship. When the George Floyd protests and the George Floyd murder happened, when companies were putting out statements and, you know, we condemn and we want to do better and so on and so forth, where are they now? Right? So when it's cool to talk about it, you talk about it. When it's not cool to talk about it, you don't. That's performative. And that's worse than doing nothing. So stop celebrating first-gen students on National First-Gen Day if all you're going to do is say hashtag celebrate first-gen. And then on November 9th, you're back to telling first-gen students why they can't have the things that they need to, to succeed. So stop there's an doing that. There's an authenticity issue there, right? Absolutely. And so that, that's, the, that's the name of the game, right? If There are institutions out there, don't get me wrong, that have earned the right to celebrate their, their first-gen students. Not very many from what we've heard from students. So I am of the mindset that you must earn the privilege of doing that because otherwise you're exploiting the narratives and the struggles and the trauma of those students mm -hmm. for your own benefit. And that's just absolutely wrong. Uh, one thing I want to, uh, I want administrators to start doing is sort of related to that, which is start listening to students, stop dismissing their narratives, give them a meaningful seat at the table and plug in with the student organizations, embrace mm -hmm. student leaders, embrace student advocacy, embrace student activism, don't fight against it. Student activism and student advocacy is radical love for an institution. The fact that students take the time to voice their concerns and, and air their grievances about what an institution is doing or not doing means that they want to improve the institution. They could just be like, hey, I'm a small fish in a big pond. I'm just going to put my head down and mind my business and not say anything. They could very well do that. The students that don't do that, that take the time and put their energy towards making change, they want to make things better. And that's to be embraced. That's not to be rebuffed. So start listening to students, give them a meaningful seat at the table, stop having the conversations about what they need without asking them what they need. It's not rocket science. It's not nuclear physics. If you ask a student what they need, they can tell you what they need. They have ideas for how to address their needs. And you don't have to like figure it out by themselves. You know, you don't have to have like that anthropological approach where you're going to like study the, the population and say, and then sort of parachute in and have like a variation of the white savior complex where you're like, hey, this is what I think first gen students need. First gen students know what they need. They will tell you and they're perfectly capable of assisting in their own support. So give them the opportunity to do that. I love that. I, I, and you're right. Bringing 
allowing them to have voice at the table and help shape the programs and the opportunities we have are going to make us stronger as institutions. And that, that idea that, you know, they could sit back and do nothing. If they were indifferent to the college they were going to, they probably would sit back and and say nothing. But the, the idea that you have around, you know, that there's a passion and a love for the institution and that's why they're doing it, I think allows people to look at um, the feedback and the conversations probably in a slightly different way than maybe they have in the past. So, well, thank you. This was so much fun. I feel like there is so much more that we can and should talk about, um, even around some of the examples on a future episode of, of changes that different chapters have managed to get enacted and, and things you know, good examples that we can show of, of other of colleges to look at and programs that have been implemented to really be able to help our first gen and low income come students. So I encourage everybody, we are going to put Chris's contact information in the show notes. If you have questions for him or want to connect, you will be able to do so there. I encourage you to share this episode, like, or follow our channel and be able to share this message with your your colleagues and others in the industry as, as we look at listening to students and trying to develop programs that will better overcome the obstacles that our first generation and low-income students are facing as they relate to, to financing college. Thank you so much.